0: Becoming and being a dad is the greatest joy I've had during my 60 years on this planet, that's for sure. Watching these little ones grow inside my wife and then seeing them delivered into this world comes pretty close. I had to wait almost 33 years before I got to lay eyes on my firstborn. So when we heard that ultrasound heartbeat on my little girl, I got busy becoming a student of pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting. Now, I'm not just talking lame dad who shows up at childbirth classes. I'm talking layperson OBGYN guy. The internet was just kind of getting rolling in 1992, so I went out and bought the best book out there, What to Expect When You're Expecting. People, I practically memorized that book. Today, 30 years later, I can still impress even strangers with my knowledge of fetal development and childbirth. I'll drop words like Braxton Hicks or Meconium, and they know I'm not bluffing. Pregnancy and childbirth is the word picture Jesus tapped into to answer a question of his disciples. Rabbi Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming to do that righteous king of the world thing? In a phrase, what should we expect when you're expected? In case you haven't been following along in this word picture podcast, I need to catch you up a little bit. Through the prophet Daniel, God emphatically stated he would send a Messiah called the Son of Man to earth at some point in mankind's history. That person would have all power and authority forever and ever. Read it in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus, referring to Daniel's prophecy, used the term Son of Man for himself no less than 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Jesus claimed that he was the one promised in Daniel's prophecy the one who'd be sent directly by God the Father, the Ancient One, to be worshipped by all men and have all authority over all. One scholar has notated 333 prophecies, or possible prophetic allusions in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Of those, only about one-third were fulfilled in the Gospels, Jesus' time on our planet 2,000 years ago. If we trust the Bible to be accurate, then Jesus must return to fulfill the other two-thirds. In Daniel's visions, he too wanted to know what to expect when this king was expected. Now, 600 years later, the disciples are asking the same question. When, Lord? When will these things come to be? Thankfully, Jesus gave them more of an answer. As we'll see, he didn't give them a date and time. He gave them signs of the seasons of his return. We're going to focus on Matthew 24 and 25, though Mark and Luke also talk about it. Jesus has just completed reading the riot act to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes, those religious bullies of Jerusalem. These are the harshest words Jesus has recorded in the New Testament. The entire chapter of Matthew 23 is just Jesus going off on them. Apparently, Jesus read most of this riot act right in the temple. He now leaves the temple with his disciples. The temple in Jerusalem was something else. Herod the Great began construction in 20 B.C., and it wasn't finished for 84 years in 64 B.C. The foundation stones of these things were massive. Some were as big as 45 feet long, 10 feet high, and 11 feet thick. If you want to have a little fun, Google how much something of that size would weigh. As Jesus and the disciples exited the temple, his disciples comment, Man, Rabbi, can you believe these stones? Jesus makes a statement, not one of these stones will be left on top of each other. The next thing you should Google is the First Jewish-Roman War. It occurred in 67 to 73 AD or... In the middle of this war, 70 A.D., Jerusalem was leveled by the Romans. It was a bloodbath, and it was provoked by the Jews themselves. Titus the emperor leveled Jerusalem, and he leveled that temple. This is the context to the disciples' question, When will these things take place, Rabbi? Jesus and the disciples head out of Jerusalem and go up on the hill, the Mount of Olives, to the east of Jerusalem, They sit down and turn back toward Jerusalem. That massive temple complex is sitting right in front of them at the eastern edge of the city. It's here Jesus breaks out his childbirth metaphor to describe what to expect when he's expected. And his answer is laid out remarkably like the childbirth process. The first stage of that childbirth process is the early labor stage. This stage is preparing a woman's body to deliver the child. This can happen for several months, and the changes can be almost unnoticeable. Jesus said there'll be an early stage of his return, a long-term preparation. Jesus gives the first two indicators in verses 4-7. through The first is, lots of false messiahs. Since the first century, there have been a parade of men and women who've come along like false contractions, claiming to be from God or even Jesus Christ himself returning. In my lifetime, there have been at least three or four. Sun Young Moon, the leader of the Moonies. The Reverend Jim Jones, famous for the cliche, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And David Koresh, the branch Davidian guy. The Wacko of Waco. The first century had its false messiahs too. Read Acts chapter 5. Men who came within months or a few years of Jesus' exit, who claimed to be the returning messiah. Jesus says... Ignore these. These guys will come and go. Jesus' second indicator was, there'll be wars and threat of wars all over the planet. Even a quick summary of world history over the last 2,000 years will demonstrate there's hardly been a year in our calendar where wars aren't breaking out all over. Jesus tells his disciples, These are just preparations for my return. Take them in stride. The second stage of having a baby is called active labor. Now the contractions are longer and stronger. There are fewer breaks between them. A delivering mother can get more emotional and focused. Jesus gives his disciples five basic indicators that were kicking into an active stage prior to his return. The first is this. His people will be persecuted to the point of death. Jesus said, you'll be handed over, persecuted, and put to death. The last 2,000 years of history, it's also hard to find a year or at least a season of time where God's people, whether you view that as the Jewish race or Jesus followers called Christians, haven't been treated poorly. Jesus says when the frequency and intensity of persecution of Jews and Gentile believers in Christ increases, it's a sign that the return of Jesus is closer. The second characteristic is Apostasy will turn people away from God. Jesus says many will turn away from the faith. That could be to deny Jesus directly, or as the later New Testament writers write, to take on a form of godliness but deny its power. Jesus is likely saying when the frequency of individuals and nations abandoning truly following Jesus for religious facades increases, the return of Jesus is close at hand. The third characteristic, spiritual deception by false teachers. Jesus says many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Later Jesus says they'll deceive many because they'll appear to carry almost supernatural power. If you remember back to Exodus 7, when Moses appears to Pharaoh, God gave him several God signs. His staff becoming a serpent, for example but Pharaoh's magicians were somehow able to convince Pharaoh that they too could change their rods into serpents. Further, Jesus warns, these teachers will be so impressive in counterfeiting truth that it can even lead genuine Christ-seekers astray, especially if they're not students of Jesus and the Word of God. It's at this point I tell my students how the FBI trains its counterfeit group to recognize false bills, They don't have them study samples of counterfeits. They have them study the real bill. How it looks, feels, bends, even smells. The only way to spot a counterfeit is to know what the real thing looks like. We'll see the writers of the rest of the New Testament appeal to this very thing. A passionate study of God's word so as to not fall prey to false doctrine. The fourth characteristic of this active labor stage, Jesus said, will be deterioration of normal relationships. He says, many will betray each other, and because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. During the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, people were eating their own children. That happened in the siege of Samaria as well in the Old Testament. But that was caused by dire starvation and circumstances, It appears here Jesus is going to talk about a more insidious loss of natural affection, a slow leak, that brotherly love for each other and even love within families is going to be replaced by a self-absorption, a love of self. When you see this loss of natural affection, when it becomes the norm rather than the exception, then expect that I'm very expected. And the last characteristic Jesus gives of this active period of labor is that the gospel will be preached in all nations. Jesus says the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. If the disciples were drifting at all in Jesus' what-to-expect lecture, they woke up here. They still couldn't grasp that the gospel, the good news, was to be preached to all nations. But they shouldn't have been surprised. That goes all the way back to Genesis 12, Abraham, through one who comes from your descendants as numerous as the stars, all nations will be blessed. By nations, Jesus likely meant people groups. Every language will be able to hear and respond to the gospel. The third stage of labor is, you better get to the hospital now if you're not already there stage. It's called transitional labor. It's intense, overwhelming, thankfully for the mom, it's also the shortest stage. It's often, though not always, triggered by an event, the bloody show, when the plug over the uterus opening detaches. This imagery appears in Jesus' what-to-expect-when-I'm-expected talk with his disciples. There'll be a trigger event, the same one Daniel talked about. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing in the holy place, then it's showtime. In Daniel's visions, This showtime event is talked about more, and much of the book of Revelation, dictated by Jesus to the gospel writer John, will discuss this in more detail. In verses 16 through 26 of Matthew 24, Jesus makes it clear that when this happens, there's no time to delay. His return is imminent. If you've left something in your house, leave it and run kind of imminent. Verse 22 is interesting. It reminds me of a decision Michelle and I made with our last two births. When the going got tough in transitional labor, we asked for an epidural. And that's a bit like what Jesus seems to describe in verse 22. At the peak of this unbelievable time of distress, it's as if God is going to give his people an epidural. Jesus said, If those days had not been shortened, those transitional labor days, no one would survive. But for the sake of God's children, his elect, those days will be shortened. We'll discuss what that shortening might mean in the letters of the New Testament. You can make it through this transitional labor stage as a mom because you know it's time to push. You're soon going to have a baby in your arms. And that's what Jesus describes next. Verses 27-31. through Birth his return to rule. Jesus describes it as quick, like lightning. He describes it as clearly evident and unmistakable to everyone in the world. Jesus said, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. That's almost a direct quote from Daniel 7.13. Jesus mentions something like a trumpet call summoning his people He mentions cosmic signs in the heavens. Don't worry about missing my coming. Nobody on this planet will miss it. That's what to expect when he's expected. As I mentioned, Jesus will flesh this out much more in the revelation he gives to John, the book that anchors the New Testament. Having answered their question, what will be the sign of your coming? He answers their obvious unasked question, when? He says this, you'll know the season but not the exact time. Not even the son of man knows the day nor the hour I'll return. Only the Father knows that, but I'll be ready to go when the Father says, go. Jesus then adds a bit of an element of surprise in using an illustration of Noah and the flood. People were enjoying life with gusto. They're eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. And then one day, the door of the ark and the skies opened up with rain. That's how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. It should be obvious that I'm imminent, but at the same time, the world will just kind of be doing its thing as if my coming is not imminent at all. Peter also refers back to Noah when discussing what to expect when Jesus' return is expected. He said, People will begin to mock, Where's the sign of his coming? For since he left life goes on. The implication is, stop drinking the Jesus Kool-Aid. He's not coming back, people. Then Peter adds, but hold on a minute. A day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. God's outside of time. He's not clock-eyed or calendar-focused. That's likely one reason he's waited for 2,000 years so far. Then Peter gives another reason. Don't you get it? He's waiting because somebody out there needs to hear the gospel. God wants his kids back. He wants all nations and every person of every tongue to have an opportunity to respond to Jesus as the Savior. Jesus finishes his what to expect when he's expected conversation with his disciples. He gives two parables about how his people should behave in his absence. The first is about bridesmaids being ready for him as the groom. The second is about three managers of his money investing it wisely in his absence. Jesus challenges his disciples, both then and now, to be ready and faithfully productive because Jesus is coming for his bride and his return is certain you can take it to the bank. The next day, Jesus moves from a chat on the Mount of Olives to an upper room in Jerusalem the eve before his death. We'll eavesdrop on Jesus and the disciples in that upper room in our next two word pictures.